Welcome to BFC Live, the daily video and podcast series of Business of Cannabis. BFC Live highlights the companies, brands, people, and trends driving the global cannabis sector. Find out all that we do at businessofcannabis.com. Coming up on BFC Live, we connect with Nalan Thalaniagam from CanDelta. We want to connect with him about the Canadian cannabis supply chain, how it's evening out, where the challenges have been, what kind of cannabis people are buying, and how they're buying it. This is Nalan Thalaniagam from CanDelta. Alan, thanks for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jay. Always a pleasure. Well, I like obviously connecting with the Can Delta team. You're great partners of ours, but also I feel like every time that we do it, I get smarter and I have a feeling <laughs> today will be no different. Um, you had said uh, before we came on that we want to talk about some of your observations that you're seeing uh, both. Well, I think it's sort of throughout the supply chain in Canadian cannabis. Where should we start? Uh, I think in this case, we'll start just by going over uh, what our supply chain looks like in Canada, and then just talking about the different licenses. And then I'll just get into just my observations based off of some Health Canada data, and then just some other news articles and OCS data that I've looked at. Love it, because I have, especially starting with the supply chain, I feel like people think someone grows it, then it gets to store, but it is this robust, you know, lots of steps along the way. And and so so let's let's walk us through. Okay, yeah. So. If you see the graphic uh, supplied by Health Canada, um, it just shows the different types of licenses and just what the process is kind of like for how to sell and who, who you can really sell to. So first step is obviously you have to cultivate the cannabis. So there's three, two licenses that help with that. So it's either a standard or a micro cultivation license. Uh, you could also throw nursery into this as well because it's the growing of starting material and you can also get seeds and seedlings and clones. Uh, you can also throw industrial hemp license into that as well. Um, same kind of cultivation, except you just have a, a strict, I guess you could say measurement of has the THC content has to be less than 0.3%. And anybody who has these licenses can sell to other cultivators, uh, other processors, or anybody authorized to do any kind of research. So that would be analytical testing or research license. Uh, research license. Uh, the second step would be the processing of cannabis. So now we're talking about either standard or microprocessing licenses. Uh, anybody who has these licenses can sell to, again, other cultivators, other processors. Anybody that has a federal sales license, so medical license holders. And then in some places you can send, uh, you can send this to a province and territories as with authorized sellers. So it's OCS or LCRB. And then again, more authorized research is allowed with, uh, within this step. And then the last step is selling to the public. So the two classes that sort this out are uh, uh, federal sales license in the medical space. So that's selling tested, labeled, and packaged cannabis products. Uh, you can either do it by phone, online, or secure home delivery, but it can only be sold to registered personnel. So anybody who registers within the site and works with that program. And then the other would be authorized and provincial territorial sales. So that's selling same deal. It's tested, labeled, and packaged cannabis at the discretion of individual provinces and territories because they're the ones who make up the rules and how their province will gain access to cannabis. There's a lot of those people. I, re I remember early days there was like there was not that many of the cultivators or the processors, and now it's there's so many with different sort of uh, not patchwork of licenses, but different kinds of licenses and working with it among themselves. And many of those licensees you'll never hear about because they're not publicly facing but they are sort of a, a integral parts of the supply chain, obviously. Yeah, exactly. It's, a, it's like a really big spider web just working all together, just so it, 
I guess you could say run smoothly, but at the same time, doesn't really uh, phase out. If that right. makes sense. Yeah, totally. And I guess love to sort of get your thoughts sort of where, like how that plays out in the world, like where, where, like who's growing, what's growing, what's selling, like all those things. You have some stuff for us on that front? Yeah. So I, I, I just want to talk about, again, just some observations that I had myself, Um, just looking at some of how Canada's, uh, I guess you could say metrics on the dried flower production and the yeah. vegetative plants. So the first graph uh, you'll see is for dried flower. And I just took a snapshot between March, 2020 and March, 2021. So it's a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, you can see from the graph that the amount of unpackaged product kind of in increases by a fair amount, uh, even into this year, March 2021. Um, the difference between March 20, sorry, March 2020 and March 2021, it's about 400 kilograms or sorry, 400,000 kilograms. So it's 400 tons of excess unpackaged and uh, inventory. So I guess just to give just to give more of an explanation on that. So Health Canada defines unfinished inventory as the amount of cannabis held in stock by a cultivator or a LP that's not packaged, that's not labeled, and it's not, and it's not ready for sale. It's, it's sitting around. Exactly, it's just sitting around. And then finished inventory is product that's ready for sale and it's held in the warehouses of provincial wholesalers and licensed producers. So we can see from this graph that between uh, March 20, uh, March 2020 and March 2021, it's about 563,000 kilograms, increasing all the way up until 954,000 kilo, kilograms. So in that, that one year alone, we're looking at about 400 tons of excess dried flour. That, yeah, exactly. A lot of weed sitting around. That's a lot of weed, man. It's, <laughs> it's a lot of, it's, well, you could also say it's a lot of money too, right? Yes, yes, yes. A lot, it's a lot of time and labor. Yeah, I don't want to say loss, but it's kind of like a sunken cost at that Misallocated, point. yeah. Yeah. And then if you look at the package inventory column, uh, it's only about 390, it's only about 390,000 uh, compared to Mar in March 2020, compared to March 2021, where it only goes for 73,000 kilos right. Right. for all. And we're talking about federal license holders throughout the country. Yeah, so it's, it's very difficult to see that number, at least for me anyways, it's kind of, it's kind of choking. Because it means like, where, where is the issue really, right? Where is that really standing? Right. And again, if you look at uh, the vegetative cannabis plant slide or the graph, sorry. Yeah. Um, we can, we actually kind of see that the unpackaged inventory decreases. So it started off in March, 2020 at like 2.9 mil and it's dropped to about 2.6. So it's pretty good. It's about 300,000 of packaged units, not kilograms uh, that have successfully been sold or used. So if you compare these two numbers, it's at least with the package production column, March 2020, we only have about 6,000 packaged units of vegetative <laughs> cannabis. Uh, and in, 20, in March 2021, it's only about 148. So again, very, very, very big drop. And I, it's just trying to, it's for me just right now, it's trying to understand where, like, why is that happening and where is it happening? So it kind of gets into my next point, which is, why is there so much excess flour? Like where, why is there so much excess flour? And can we, can we discuss some potential, I guess, causes for this excess? So I guess you could say that although potency and THC percentage is probably an issue, I guess, with the current dried flour market, I get the overarching theme to this question is just poor mediocre quality of dried flour, especially on the early days of the market, where compared to now, it's been ramped up a, a fair amount. 
Customers are also being more sophisticated. Uh, some people are actually turning to more higher quality craft cannabis uh, with more interesting terpene profiles as explained on LP's website where you can actually go and visit and see how it's being grown, what the what flavors they're really targeting towards and just getting an overall look at what the end product is, what the end goal is. And then the awareness of CBD and other compounds are becoming another key decision maker for most consumers because for anybody new entering the space, I feel like THC percentage and just that number in general is just a little daunting to look at. So maybe for them, at least using CBD as a more, I guess you could say health and wellness approach, which is a lot more easier to, in, uh, to consume. Uh, we also have, a, we can also add <laughs> to this issue with poor market forecasting, just very inadequate market research very lax production practices, which all in turn trigger a multiple, a multitude, sorry, of regulatory issues as well. So the way an LP runs their business is a potential for a supply chain. Um, again, just from what I've shown you guys so far, I'm inferring that an LP kind of treats cannabis as a commodity rather than a tailored product, uh, sort of a grow it and they'll come kind of a model. Um, but apart from misjudging the demand, so the type and the volume, uh, you can also see some of the issues, uh, some other issues such as constrained distributions, especially in Ontario, which I will discuss in a little bit. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, so that looking at that figure again, like 400 tons of dried flour, it can it says a lot without having to say a lot. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think the product, I believe, product might have been sitting on shelf for a fair amount of time. Uh, while it's becoming stale. And then at that point, distribution was also pinched, especially in the early days of cannabis legalization in the country. Uh, average shelf life for cannabis, at least for storing it in ideal conditions would be in a dark room and you keep it at room temp. It's pretty simple. And you can get to about one to two years and it won't, it's not that it won't dry out, it'll take longer to dry out. Uh, most retail stores don't do this. Uh, I've, I've, personally never walked into a retail store where they have a dark space. It's usually either in a locked in, locked in the back with lights on so you can see what product you're working with. Right. And we can assume in that case that the shelf life would decrease by a fair amount. And, and with uh, just to, just a, they would also argue that they have to get it in, like they're the end of the supply chain, not the beginning. Right. So no, exactly. have to, like, leave the, <clears throat> leave the producer, get to the provincial authorities, get to them. And like, I, I mean, Many of look retailers are trying to manage their inventory, obviously, but you know they can only manage what they get. No, exactly right. And again, volatility in the sector kind of also means a lot of turnover and instabilities in the LP. Uh, it also contributes to undisciplined operations, and then having a shelf life. In general, just having shelf life on a product just tends to accentuate errors as the inventory loses freshness and value. Yeah, yeah totally. So. Again, just looking at other forms of Health Canada data, just on my research alone and multiple news articles, uh, you can see that Health Canada standards, well, products that fail to meet Health Canada standards that can't be sold or used as biomass, there's only one option for them. You, you got to destroy it at that point. So since 2018, we can estimate that there's over 500 tons of unpackaged cannabis that had to get destroyed since 2018. And if we look at 2019 to 2020, we can see that almost 6 million packages 
of, of cannabis products were destroyed. Uh, half of that, so about 3.7 package, 3.7 million packaged dried cannabis products destroyed. And then the others, uh, sorry, the other fraction of that would be distributed between extracts, edibles, and topicals, with extracts at 1.5, the edibles at 700K, and then topicals at about 943 packages. So again, it's a lot of cannabis. That's a lot of weed that's getting burned. A lot of waste, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, as you were mentioning earlier about the retail stores and how they are the last in line for the supply chain, uh, it is a factor to look into for our cannabis supply chain. Um, again, if you look at the beginning of legalization till now in Ontario specifically, I'll, I'll talk about Ontario specifically for this portion. Um, Ontario has a population of about 13 and a half million. Uh, and over a third, and that's over a third of the country's total population. So if you look at the OCS Insights report for the 2019-2020 year, we see the total number of stores for that portion, at least the reported portion, is only 53 stores. Right. Okay. And then as of now, when you look on the AGCO portal and like you filter it to show the authorized stores to open, it's about 1,076 in the province, which is like 950 store plus in that one year, in that at least one year time span, right? And even in that situation, there are still, there is a little bit of a distribution gap here, right? So even in, uh, even in our city, in the GTA area, there, if you take into the opted municipalities, for example, Mississauga, Vaughan, Markham, it's about one and a half million people that cannot be serviced by cannabis. They cannot, sorry, they cannot be serviced by uh, AGCO because the municipalities have opted out. So anybody that lives in those boroughs, they will have to travel, spend more money on gas, right. go uh, to, to indulge, right? And to get the product that they want. And we're talking about at least to help ease the pain for supply chain, you know, if you could open up these municipalities, we could definitely see a drop in that excess flour. And then we also see that customers show, I guess you could say a marked preference for buying in store versus buying online. Cause I mean, I, I, I would like to go see and talk to somebody who knows about weed, especially, yeah. when, especially when I like to purchase something and I'd like to ask questions just off the bat. Maybe there's a, maybe there's something new that I haven't really tried and a butt tender can give me some more insight, right? We can see from the OCS Insights report that sales velocity by THC and sales for the new product category charts, uh, more sales for new products are generated in a retail store versus onto the OCS itself, the OCS website. Uh, the sales velocity for products on over 20% THC is 344 times uh, the amount sold on the OCS. Right. And it's about 199 times uh, on the OCS. So it's, it's almost double the amount that you're getting from in-store versus online. So another aspect that we could talk about in this situation would be the jump in the number of producers in this past two years, because uh, that, that could also lead to a bottleneck into, into the supply chain. So again, just looking at more Health Canada data and StatsCan data, uh, at the beginning of legalization, there's about 132 LPs listed and then of those 132, about 32 of them have a sales amendment, which would have which would have allowed them to sell, excuse me, straight to a product, uh, straight product to a retailer. 
compared to now, when we take a look at it, it's over 600 LPs. Right. And at, at least over half of them have a uh, uh, sales amendment. So that's over 6 million people. Oh, sorry. Uh, that's over at least 300 LPs that could sell straight to a retailer or a retail uh, distributor. And then if we dial it down a little bit and we take a look at what, how much product is actually sold, at least you could say, there's about 9 million package units of cannabis extracts that's shown, but only about in April, sorry, but only about a million of the package units that are actually being sold to a retailer. So sorry, 9 million made and only a million being sold. Another right? big gap between pro produced and, you know, and distributed. Exactly. So kind of, see, so you can kind of see that all of these issues are very interconnected and with past errors and developments lingering in the supply chain, it kind of makes the product stranded and it also loses the main thing is that it loses value. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, and I wonder though, I wonder every year that we have this conversation in September, let's say like, will these things, you know, right size, meaning like, will you know, there'll be at some point, there'll be a steady state of numbers of retail stores in Canada. There will be a number of consumers who are buying in a legal market. We'll know relatively what they're buying. There'll always be new products, but, but at some point it'll be like, you know, you know, beer, for example, right? Like beer companies, beer producers know roughly what people are going to be buying. Stores know roughly what kind of beer and what quantities people are going to be buying because they have 20, 40, 60, hundred years of data. We have since 2018, right? Like we, like, yeah. we barely have any. Um, and so I just wonder if like at some point we will, you know, all the graphs will come, you know, the supply and demand will, will marry up and, and that'll be great for consumers. It'll be great for businesses. It'll be great for the, uh, the provincial authorities. We're just not there yet, obviously. Exactly. I think, uh, I think really the larger point in this is that it's a very new industry. Everybody's still, everybody's still trying to figure it out in some way or form. And the volatility, the volatility that you can see expressed, like a lot of it is based off of very, like very minor things for some people, I guess you could say in the first half of the supply chain in the cultivation processing side, whereas compared to the retailer side. So that could include like management turnover, like overbuilding of facilities and like other things that are not necessarily conducive to a stable operating environment that may be affecting our supply chain. No, there's a lot there. And, and one of the other points I think is how people want to be buying it on the tail end of the supply chain, because all the numbers you just showed between what people are buying online at OCS and what people are buying in store. I mean, people are heavily favoring in store, obviously. And I just, you know, the numbers don't lie. Like people want to be in store. Um, and, and that's true in other provinces too. And I just think it's, <clears throat> I think the conversation is heading to like, what is the role of provincial authorities in this, in this process? outside of like Quebec and the provincially owned ones, like what is the role of the wholesaler? Is it to be selling directly to consumers or is it to be a great wholesaler? No, exactly. I think, I think at this point, it, it's just to see that, how can it, like, I, I think with most LPs, I think just customer feedback is like a really big thing, right? Like, are, you, are your consumers liking your product? Do they, do they want to see more? Do they want to see less? Do they want to see something different? Right. right. I think key feedback like that will really help in the long run. Uh, I guess you could say the same for retailers as well. Like talk to your, uh, talk to your MPs, talk to the people in your opted out municipalities, see if they would be interested at all into allowing for more stores to be open just so we can help give accessibility to people that need to leave that borough 
to go service themselves elsewhere. People want to buy cannabis. That is like, for sure. all these numbers suggest that that is the case. It's exactly. Everything in the back end, getting the supply chain there is really where we're all focused in this conversation has been. For sure. And I think the one thing that at least that us at the Ken Delta team can, at least can do to help would probably be to just, well, I guess you could help you be a more informed business owner versus somebody who's just like, I guess, who just wants to be there, who just wants to, you know, they don't want the fear of missing out. So I guess so. I guess if somebody was interested in was interested in pursuing any of these federal health Canada licenses or possibly even a retail license throughout the country, uh, I know that we would be able to help a lot. We would be able to assist a lot um, in the retail space. Uh, at least uh, from what we've seen with our clients, uh, we can help make sure that you guys are placed on a path of success. Uh, we could ha- obviously help you scout good locations. Uh, obtaining licenses in a timely way, just sharpening your management overall. Uh, and that would include inventory management. So use it, how to use inventory versus storing it and customer expression so that the product is not lingering on shelves or in growing sale. We could also help calculate the amount of money that a business owner should al- allocate for initial inventory purchases. So when you first open your store, you have to make that first purchase with the OCS, at least in Ontario. And at least from what we've seen, we, we have collected a fair amount of consumer data and that we can see that it's necessary to only, to, it's necessary to invest a fair bit because it's your first initial order, but following the OCS's guidelines is the best way to run your business. And OCS recommends only putting at least 10 to 15 days worth of product uh, as, as your first purchase order at least, and then just riding the wave and then seeing what your consumer base is like in the location you've selected, yeah. which all tie into how well your store runs. Yeah, because you don't want to be drowned by your first order for the rest of your life. And I think exactly. that, right, it's, it's been really hard because the certainly early days of the retailers, they only had one, well, they only had very number, limited number of SKUs to buy. So everybody had the same SKUs. Now, whereas, as you sort of talked about, we're not, we're not that place. This has been super informative, like thinking about the whole picture, drilling down to product, where people are getting it, how they're getting it. And I think importantly, and not, not to sort of tell you guys, but, but the Can Delta team really has a purview of sort of all of this and, and both can save a bunch of money if you're starting up, but also really help you hone what exactly you're doing, uh, both from cultivation all the way through to retail. So I appreciate the team. I appreciate learning uh, every week, sort of what you guys are up to. So now, and thanks for being here today. And we look forward to connecting with you down the road. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Jay. Again, always a pleasure to talk to you, man. It's nice to be here. It's been good fun. The beer looks good too. Oh, you too, man. Thanks. All right. Thanks. That was Nalan Thelaniagam from Can Delta. If you like this program, please rate and review us wherever you heard the podcast. It helps support the work we do. We're able to do what we do because of our ongoing partners, including Alterna Savings, Cannabis at Work, Cannabis Benchmarks, Can Delta, Gallagher, Headset, and Torque Mains. Find out all that we do at businessofcannabis.com.